0: today's episode is sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today for a special holiday deal. Get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 234 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals, where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about creating a specialty notion with my guest, Jen McMillan. Jen is a graphic designer, quilter, and fabric-obsessed sewist living in rural Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. She likes to call herself the Thread Whisperer. Sewing, since she can remember, Jen was taught to sew on an old singer featherweight and has dabbled in various forms of textile arts her entire life. Growing up around family members who sewed, Jen was always curious about the various trinkets and notions that were used and collected. She remember, remembers digging through her grandmother's sewing kit and pulling out a knurled chunk of beeswax, later finding out what she used it for, taming her threads. She's also excited that So Fine Thread Gloss is celebrating its five-year anniversary this year. Jen McMillan, welcome and congratulations on the five-year anniversary. Thank you, Abby. Thanks for having me as well. Hi, everyone. So happy to have you. And I am very excited to learn about how you've launched and grown this very unique business over the last five years. But we're going to kind of backtrack first and just talk a a little bit about where you were born and raised and what you were like as a kid.
1: Yeah, definitely. I was born in a small town just outside of Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, called Arnprior. It's part of the Ottawa Valley, for those of you who are familiar with this part of Ontario. And yeah, so I grew up in a small town, and always had family members who um, who quilted and sewed, and so I've always been very involved and very exposed to all sorts
0: of textile arts my entire life. And were you like an artistic kid? Did you enjoy drawing and doing other kind of art forms? Yeah, I was definitely I was definitely the
1: artistic kid. I had drawings all over my walls. I watercolor painted and I sketched and, um, I definitely, I definitely doodled everywhere, (laughs) which obviously led me to my, uh, my career as a graphic designer.
0: Right. So in high school, were you taking some art classes too?
1: Yes. I, I definitely went down the art stream in my high school. You either went down the music stream or the art stream. And so I was the, I was part of the art kid crowd and, um, loved art classes and drama and everything
0: artistic. Okay, got it. And it sounds like you learned to sew from um, your relatives on a Singer Featherweight, which is so cool that you remember the kind of sewing machine and that it was that sewing machine that you learned to sew on. Can you tell us about some of like your first projects or your earlier memories of sewing? Yeah, definitely. So I learned
1: on a Singer Featherweight, it was my grandmother's, which my mother still has that machine to this day. Um, she unfortunately passed when I was really young. So my mother taught me to sew on that machine, as well as my paternal grandmother taught me to sew as well. She was a big quilter. And some of my earliest memories are, uh, my, my grandmother would take me to this fabric shop that was in the next town over. And they had this massive wall of vintage fabrics. And it was a dream to go through and just look at all the patterns and look at the textures of of the different fabrics. And I actually used to grab a yard or two. It was super cheap. It was really old and some of it was falling apart. But I would grab uh, a few yards and remake some of my favorite shirts. And that I learned, obviously, the importance of cutting um, pattern pieces in the direction of stretch. <laughs> And yep. had, had some bad mistakes there, but <laughs> it was all a learning process. But uh, yeah, that's, that's how I learned and through experimentation and through exposure to that.
0: Yeah. I think experimentation is really important and undervalued. Like I feel like being able to totally make a mistake and spend a whole lot of time and sometimes some money making something that then you can't pull on over your head or whatever. <laughs> it's like, it's it's not a waste. It's actually like really important part of figuring out like why the instructions are written the way they are. Yes. You know, so um, sometimes when my kids do stuff like that, I'm like, it's okay. Just breathe. It's fine. (laughs) Like, this is not a waste of fabric. So, um, so did you go to college to become a graphic designer or was that something that you ended up kind of pursuing afterward?
1: Um, Half and half. So I started, I originally actually wanted to go to college to be a photographer, But I decided instead to go down the marketing stream. So I I went to school for marketing and I did a dual diploma with two different marketing programs at a college a few hours down the road from my hometown. And during my last year of that program, we had a design course. And so we actually, it was almost like a co-op. So we got to work with a local business. We created a marketing strategy for them and a promotional campaign. As part of the marketing campaign, we we were able to create these promotional tickets for, for the company. And I was able to design those tickets using the programs that we had access to. And I fell in love with it. I just, I loved that aspect of, of the campaign development. And so after I left school, I worked in retail for a while. And then I was able to take my graphic design program post graduation. Okay. so I went back to school. I went back to school and took graphic design here
0: at a at a college in Ottawa. That's funny. So like right at the end of school you sort of got a taste of it and then you know, I think it's probably a good thing to go work in between two and get a little bit of life experience and then come back and really for graduate school do what you you know really want to focus on at that point you kind of have it figured out a little bit better. So um when you were in graduate school for graphic design, was that in the like digital era completely? So were you learning, you know, Illustrator, et cetera? Because I, I talk to some people just depending on how old they are, it's like, oh, I was right before, <laughs> or we were in the middle between the transition. So
1: I definitely was before the transition um in high school i did dabble as well um i was in the yearbook course so i was in the yearbook program so we actually designed and laid out the yearbook sure yeah um which was like my first first taste yeah um but then in my graphic design program it was a print specific they hadn't they hadn't divided off the web into its own field and so in a way i feel Like I maybe should have stayed in school a little bit longer, but it was in that transition period in the industry as well, where, um, everything was going towards web, but nothing had changed yet. So I definitely love print. I worked in a print facility for about six years. Oh, wow. And so I love the texture of paper and I love that tactile feel that you get from different print substrates and printing techniques. And so My love is definitely in print. I'll always,
0: yeah, (laughs) I'll always, I'll always go back to print. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and in some ways, you still have a very tactile business. I mean, there are people who work in the quilting industry who have a completely digital business in a lot of different ways, but you have Mm -hmm. very much a tactile one. So, um, so that's interesting. Okay, so um, so you became a graphic designer. I know you work full time. I don't know if you do still have a full time job, but um, as a graphic designer. I do. I'm,
1: uh, I'm actually the brand and creative lead for Collier's Project Leaders. So uh, Collier's International is a real estate company in Canada and the United States and worldwide as well. Project Leaders is a subsidiary of Collier's and we are a project management firm and we work on capital projects all over Canada and in Dubai as well. And so we're helping construction companies build, um, schools and hospitals and community centers and pools. And so I am the the brand and creative lead for the company. So I
0: I run the design aspect of the business. That's so cool. And it sounds like that must be really demanding. I mean, I, I don't know. I know you had a commute prior to the pandemic. I'm not sure. Are you working from home still? And is it a pretty demanding job? It is a demanding job. Uh, luckily, I don't have to go
1: into my office anymore, which is fantastic. <laughs> uh, working from home has been great. Um, I did have an hour commute prior because we live outside of the city. So my closest office was an hour away. And I love being able to work from home now. It just gives, it gives people so much more flexibility. And it's, yeah, it's been fantastic. It's been great.
0: Yeah, that's great. And you're also a mom. um, Correct. So um, how many kids do you have? And how old are they? So I have two daughters, my oldest is turning
1: 13 in about a week from when this gets released. And my youngest will be eight this summer.
0: Okay. So that's a whole busy job also. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a full-time hockey mom on top of everything. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, that's a lot. Yes. Being a hockey mom is a whole nother thing. Um, And then you're also a creative business owner. So um, you must be, I just, we'll get to sort of the business piece of it in a second, but I wondered if you are kind of naturally good at scheduling yourself and productivity and kind of time management and prioritization and that kind of thing. And are those things that sort of come naturally to you? It doesn't necessarily come naturally, but it's a necessity of
1: having to juggle a lot of things. Um, I live by my shared calendar with my husband and we schedule everything in and use a lot of apps to keep track of, to keep track of all the things that we're doing on a regular basis.
0: Yeah, I imagine. So um, does it ever get, feel like overwhelming having all of these different roles like that you're balancing? Definitely. Yeah. I think there's, there's definitely waves where there's just
1: so many things going on all at once. And it feels like, oh my God, I've got to let something go. I can't do this anymore. Um, but then that passes or you try and find ways that you, you let some things go or you change the way you do something so that you can give yourself some sanity.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, it sounds like you had a, you had some business sort of businesses percolating in the quilting industry before you launched this product. So you were maybe doing shows or other things. Tell us a little bit about kind of the early phases of being in the quilting industry for you. Yeah.
1: So, um, I definitely was a craft show vendor as a lot of us probably were at the start of our careers. Um, I made quilts and sewed products, bags, pouches and attended all of the the shows locally. Um we have some we have a really good collection of of independent craft shows in our area, so I definitely had lots of opportunity to do that. And um it definitely came to a point where as I'm sure a lot of people in the craft business and industry knows you get a lot of people that criticize the cost of your products because they don't understand the cost of the supplies and the cost of your time and wanting to make a living or wanting to make a profit off of your skill and ability. And, and so I finally decided that the crafts, the craft show scene wasn't for me anymore. So I stopped sewing for other people and I focused on sewing for myself and
0: kind of reclaiming that joy in my hobby. A hundred percent. I had that same experience. And um, did you ever consider designing patterns and selling? Because a lot of people start exactly where you started, selling finished items, and then realize, you know, it's better for me to sell instructions than it is to sell finished products. And certainly you had all the skills to format and photograph. Um, so you could have gone down. Did you go down that route to sell patterns?
1: I did a few myself, but I didn't. I definitely didn't push it as far as I could have. Um I did release a few patterns I had, a little like a little knitting pattern for baby mitts and a few basic um beginners quilting patterns. But and obviously like you said I definitely had the skills and abilities to lay out the patterns and and do the math and and create a really nice finished product, but that I just didn't find the passion in that I didn't I didn't find the joy in going down that road um, I do however occasionally will freelance to other pattern designers and I have helped some designers create some technical drawings and um, lay out their their patterns so I have freelanced in that sense I still enjoy helping the designers to to release these things into the world because yeah I, yeah, obviously I still love that.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So were you looking for a business? In other words, were you like, okay, I tried the craft shows. That's not for me. I did a couple of patterns and knitting and quilting, but I'm not like passionate. I don't feel like the fire burning to continue with that. Were you like, well, you know, quilting can be what I do because I love it and I don't necessarily need a business and then stumbled upon a business or, Were you like, I would like a business. Let me see if I can find a hole in the market that I can fill. You know what I mean? Like, where were you when it comes to that?
1: Yeah. So I had made my own version of thread gloss, scented thread gloss, prior to deciding to make it a business. And I had made some for myself. I was using it for myself, similarly to, you know, finding that chunk of beeswax in my my grandmother's sewing kit. And it was around the time that Thread Heaven decided to shut down business. I had seen kind of the rumbling. And actually, it may have been in the Quilt Industry Alliance or the Craft Industry Alliance newsletter about them um, closing down shop and not being able to find a buyer for their business. I know. And And just
0: for people who don't know what that is, right, Thread Heaven was this beloved thread conditioner. Um, and I bought like a whole bunch of them right when they were closing, but it was owned, I guess, by a couple. And it was, I think it's challenging to sometimes to find a buyer for a business. I'm not sh- totally sure how hard they tried. I don't know. But rather than sell, um, they just shut down and this beloved product disappeared off of the market. Um, okay. So, and and at that point you had made, it sounds like, some thread conditioner yourself. Um, and did you have experience creating like a cosmetic or creating like, a, I don't know, like melting beeswax to make something candles or, or is this like, do you just put it in a pot and try? <laughs> I definitely didn't have the proper equipment to start okay. off with. Um,
1: I had, I had dabbled in making a few very basic body products and lip balms and stuff, you know, those little craft kits that you can get from Michael's or whatever. Um, I had definitely dabbled in that before. And so, and then knowing that I wanted to mix in a fragrance, um, I had melted down some beeswax before and and made a rudimentary recipe, but yeah, it was around the time that Thread Heaven decided that they were going to close that I started talking to a couple of my local quilt friends and I'm like, you know what this, like, there's a lot of people that are really upset about this going away. Yes. (laughs) I wonder if, you know, this is, is this the hole in the market? Do other people want, would they be interested in this? So I, um, I, I had talked to quite a few people in that I knew through the quilts, um, in the quilt industry asking what they thought um, if I made some, would they be willing to try it? And so I, I made, I made a few tins and I developed a brand and I sent it off into the world to a couple of, um, popular quilters that I knew locally and they gave me some honest feedback and yeah, it's, it grew from there.
0: I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Craftsy, and here is a message from Craftsy. At Craftsy, we know making. Whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to advance your skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests. From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $3. Visit CraftsyOffers.com for a special holiday deal. Sign up and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. For only $3, you get a full year of access to over 1,500 premium Full-length classes. It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you're an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you're an experienced maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy is for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 1,500 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. It's an awesome holiday deal. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And how did you come up with a name So Fine Thread Gloss? so i knew i was going to have it on a small tin
1: <laughs> and so i didn't want i didn't i knew that i did couldn't have a large name and i guess that's the graphic designer in my mind or in my brain thinking you know i can't i want it to be a nice bold look i want it to be easily readable legible when you hold it in your hand because the tins that i was planning on using were fairly small they're only a, a half ounce so knowing that i had to have a small label, I, I knew that I needed to have a short name so that I can make the most impact on the label. And I don't remember exactly how I came up with So Fine, but that was the one that stuck. I actually found some some sketches from when I first started designing labels Um, I first had a script you know I wanted to have this nice swoopy script but then at a really small scale you couldn't read it so I just went with um, good old Gotham as as the logo font and just made a really bold legible logo.
0: And I'm wondering like the word gloss in my mind it almost is resonant of lip gloss. Exactly yeah. Okay that was in your mind that was in my mind again,
1: like I said, um, making like lip balms, lip glosses. Um, I have these little tins of, uh, beeswax lip balm that I've used. And, uh, long story short, I looked for this vendor for years. My grandmother got me a tin of this beeswax lip balm and I couldn't find the vendor anywhere. And so when I finally found her at like a local market, I bought probably 10, 10 tins of her of her lip gloss. So it was always in my mind that like, it looks like lip gloss and I get people asking all the time, can I use it as lip gloss? (laughs) So that word was always, was always in my brain as well. Like thread conditioner, again, trying to keep the words down to
0: to shorter
1: words so that they were more legible on the label.
0: Right. And gloss still has that Connotation of like, it's, you're coating something. Yes. So it has the conditioner coating idea, um, without it being such a long word. And it sounds like the tin idea maybe came from those, um, lip balms that you had because, um, mm-hmm. a thread heaven is in this little blue, um, plastic square. Um, So your product doesn't look anything like Threat Heaven. I mean, it's a similar, you know, even though that was sort of maybe the the inspiration to fill that hole in the market, I guess there would be one path where you're like, well, I'll just go get those exact same little plastic boxes or whatever. But you had this tin idea that was percolating as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if they have locations in the United States, but Lee Valley is, is a pretty big brand here in Canada. And I had, um, a couple sets, they sell these, these like trinket kits and they have a whole bunch of different sizes of these little, these little metal tins. And some of them have glass tops. So like I've used them for beads and jewelry findings and, and that type of thing. So I had these sets before. And, and so I knew that, you know, those, those would be great. They were a really cute little size and uh, yeah. And that's, that's the path I went down.
0: Okay, great. So, um, so I'm imagining after you got some feedback from these quilting industry buddies who um, offer to be early beta testers. <laughs> um, so were you making this in your kitchen? I was, yes. Okay. So describe kitchen. like the early, <laughs> describe like the earliest, early setup. Was this like, I'm um, like a, like a, like a, a big pot and just beeswax that you're buying like retail somewhere or. So really, really early setup. Um,
1: I, I've always worked with a local apiary. And so they had a couple beeswax melting tools, pots. Um, I had this almost like a tall pouring pot that was made out of metal and then I made almost like a double boiler out of a another kitchen pot that we had that was missing a handle that we didn't use so I wasn't worried if I got wax all over it and I was making them in my the kitchen so I would get my supplies out and I would clean off my counter scrub everything down set everything up and then take over the kitchen <laughs> for for a production session and
0: then put it all away afterwards wow Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot to do. And how long were you doing this that way?
1: I think I was doing it that way for a year and a half. So was this every weekend or? Um, It would be like one or two nights a week. I would set everything up,
0: make some thread gloss and then put it all away. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot, a lot of labor. And so in the beginning, um, did you have like what was what was the first scent to launch and and what were the first kind of product, you know, like the the very beginning products that you had? The very beginning. So
1: the first scent that I made for myself was Ruby Grapefruit, which was like a, a red grapefruit scent. I love grapefruit. That's just one of the scents for me that I will always love. Um there was ruby grapefruit. There was a one. Um, trying to think of it. Lime and sugar cane has always been an original. I had a natural, which is just purely unscented. Um, lemon peel. There was a pink sugar, which I ended up, which I ended up discontinuing because not very many people liked it. Um, I had a linen one as well at the very very start that nobody liked. So I never <laughs> launched it. Um, that went out to some of those first testers. Um, I think I had about six or seven cents to begin with.
0: Okay. And talk a little bit about the scents themselves and what you learned about essential oils and what you've learned about the kind of scents that are best to use in a thread conditioner.
1: Yeah. So I, At the start, I just had this weird feeling about using essential oils because I've used essential oils in the past and I've known from experience that they can go bad and they can go rancid and skunky. And so I've always just at the very start, I'm like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to use that, you know? And so when I started researching different fragrance oils, I decided upon the phthalate-free fragrance oils, which are bath and body safe. Those are the fragrance oils that are used in body products when essential oils aren't used um, because they're they're non-toxic on your skin. And even though the fragrance oils are in the recipe in small amounts, you are using your hands, right? You're using your hands on, on the wax when you're when you're putting it on your thread yeah. and, and you're using it when you're sewing, um, but they are also water solubles. So when you wash your quilt, when you wash your sewing, any leftover residue that's there from the fragrance is going to be washed out. So it's not going to impact the threads or the fabrics at all. Um, and so actually a few years ago, I had a an antique quilt that I was asked to finish. And I brought it to a woman that I know who works at a local museum. And she's a textile curator here in Ottawa. And I, when I was there asking her about this quilt, I, I asked her about essential oils. I said, what, what do you think about this? And she actually brought up a ton of research that has shown how essential oils actually can degrade fabrics. They can polymerize, they can turn into plastics after years and years and, and break down the fibers in, in your threads and in your fabrics. And so talking to her about, you know, my choice of not using essential oils in the thread gloss, she thought it was, it was a smart idea to to go down the path that I did and use a product that can be easily washed out that wouldn't leave any residue at all.
0: Yeah. And it's important for people who sew to have that faith in the product because a lot of times, first of all, like knitting, if sewing is very labor intensive. It can take a long time. The fabrics that you're buying, the thread that you're buying, often is expensive. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. Um, and the thing that you're making can also be something that you're hoping is going to last is going to become an heirloom or be worn a lot of times or, or whatever. And so you want, you know, once you really get into this sort of hobby, you start investing in good tools and in good supplies, and you want to mm-hmm. make sure that the things that you're making, um, cause it takes hundreds of hours are going to be things that, are worth that time, you know. You stop yes, using exactly. cheap fabric. You stop using cheap thread. You kind of upgrade because you see the investment. And so, having um, a thread conditioner that's going to enhance and not inhibit that is really important. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So now you find yourself in the business of <laughs> melting beeswax all the time, <laughs> which is a whole like different thing than. Graphic design and certainly a different thing than um making bags to sell at craft fairs. So, um, so how did your sort of equipment setup change over time? Um, like what was the next phase? Cause at a certain point, I'm sure your family was like, This yeah. whole kitchen thing you're doing here <laughs> is not gonna keep going.
1: Yeah. yeah. At one point, my husband's like, you know what? You've taken over the kitchen. Um, I had a little Uh, I had a little case. I ended up having, you know, one of those plastic drawer, three drawer. Oh yeah. Rolly rolly things um, near the kitchen that I had everything in and it just became, I was upset with it. My husband was upset with it. It was taking over. So um, we built a little mini kind of production studio in our basement for the business. And so that is where I make everything. Now I've got a nice big shelving unit. I've got a work table. I have, um, everything set up within arm's reach that I don't need to take anything out. I can keep it set up if I need to. And yeah, it is so much better on our family
0: sanity. Absolutely. And, and so is it, I'm imagining you didn't put in like a whole stove. Is it like a hot plate kind of situation or how are you melting these things? Like what's the heat source? I have two slow cooker type,
1: type warmers that I use to, for the different stages because I get um, a lightly filtered natural beeswax from the apiary. So I have to do um, a filtration process as well. So I do my first melt and there's still, you know, hive bits um, in there, there's some debris. And so then I filter it all into my secondary, Um, warmer, which then I use to mix my batches.
0: I see. I see. Okay. So it's almost like if people imagining two slow cookers, like set up side by side and then, okay. All right. And so, and you're going to this apiary. That's super cool. They must sell beeswax to all different kinds of businesses. That must be a really interesting experience even just to be in contact with them. Yeah, it's
1: fantastic. They, um, they're, they're small a uh, small company, but they do they do sell a lot of beeswax, and so they work with other local apiaries who don't sell to the public. So they like to keep uh, they keep a small stock of some of the products that are made with their oh, with their beeswax so cool. right inside their little shop. So there's lots of body products. There's candles. There's um, some people will even sell you know the the honey and the combs. Oh yeah, and They even sell a collection of wildflower seeds. So that if you wanted to have your own, your own setup, your own mini apiary setup, then you can make sure that your bees have a lovely food source.
0: (laughs) That's super cool. Yeah. And have you learned things about beeswax over time? I mean, it sounds like you've learned about this filtration system. I don't know. I've never worked with beeswax, so I'm sort of fascinated is. Was there like a learning process and just working with it that you've, you've figured out over time? Yeah, there's lots of really interesting things about it. So it's it's an actual
1: animal byproduct. So vegan, a lot of vegans won't use it because it's right. a product that is produced by an animal's body. So um, there's that. And then one of the interesting things as well that I love about beeswax that a lot of people at first get a little scared about is that beeswax a, a good pure natural beeswax beeswax will call will bloom and it looks almost dusty. It looks a little bit like mold. Like if you were to see like a white powdery film, if you see a really good beeswax candle that has that um bloom on it, it's really good quality beeswax because it's just the natural process of the lighter oils rising to the surface. Um And I find it so beautiful. It's, to me, it's just one of those, one of those things that you see and you can instantly recognize that it's a really good quality beeswax by the fact that it blooms.
0: Oh, interesting. But I've,
1: I've definitely had customers who have panicked and emailed me and said, oh my God, I haven't opened this tin in like a few months. And there's like this white thing on the top and it's very light and very faint, but you can just buff it off with your thumb and it goes away. It's not mold at all. It's just the
0: bloom. That's so cool. Yeah. I didn't know anything (laughs) about that. Okay. So, um, so you, you got your sort of new setup where you can, um, be out of everybody's way and leave everything (laughs) out and be a little bit more, um, productive without having to clean everything up all the time at the end of each, um, each process. So, um, so how did you start to get the word out there, you know, initially that you have this product, maybe, it's great for people who loved thread heaven and are looking for a solution. And, and, and also let's just talk for people who, who don't sew, or I've never used a thread conditioner, like a, a why thread conditioner? Like what is, what is, what does it actually do? Like what, why is it important?
1: Yeah. So thread conditioner, um, one of my little taglines is tame your threads um, for anybody who's done any sort of hand sewing you can very easily tangle up the threads, whether you're twisting your needle as you sew, or it's staticky, or for whatever reason, everybody all you'll always get a knot or something um, will happen because it's a not most in most cases it's a natural fiber. A lot of quilters and sewists will use cotton thread, which is made out of fibers that are spun into into a string or thread. So those natural fibers will. On a microscopic level, stand up and they will lint and catch on things. And so, by using something, whether it's beeswax or a candle, or some people even just will rub their fingers over a thread and get a little bit of, um, you know, like your skin oil onto the thread, it tames those fibers and helps them to lay down and stay in order. And allows your thread and your needle to glide
0: through the fabric more easily without catching on things. And once you start using it, you will never go back (laughs) (laughs) because you're like, I have to have this if I'm going to sew anything by hand. It's just one of those things where um, you stop being frustrated and start enjoying yourself because your thread is not constantly tangled. So it's very, very useful product. And as you said, our grandmothers, great grandmothers, I mean, people have been using wax for this purpose for generations, um, because Mm -hmm. they knew what they were doing. (laughs) So, (laughs) All right. So how did you get your word out in the beginning? Did you go to your local guild or, you know, just send things out via Instagram, you know, friends, or how did you kind of get the word out at the start?
1: Yeah. So, um, we have a local guild here. And so I was lucky to be able to talk to some of the other quilters in the area, like I mentioned earlier. And, um, one of our local quilt shops was the very first, um, shop to stock it for me, which I will forever be grateful. The previous owner, um, was definitely supportive of my endeavors and was fantastic in that way. But I definitely knew that I needed to get the word out through shops, um, that I couldn't rely on retail sales or necessarily word of mouth to start out with. And so I made a list of some of the biggest uh, independent quilt shops around um, Canada. And I started strictly only in Canada and reached out to them, told them my story and offered to send a couple samples. And I did the same thing with a few different quilters. Um, there were a few in Canada, but then there was a few in the U S as well that I reached out to and sent some samples to. And, um, from there it has all grown organically. I have not done any paid marketing aside from some sponsorships through different events. Um, But there's been a lot of word of mouth. A lot of the shops have supported me so much, and I will forever be grateful to them. Um, And then there's been a few partnerships along the way that have really benefited my business.
0: And did you decide to sell through distributors?
1: I didn't actually. So the first feature that I had through the Craft Industry Alliance was a write up. And right after that, I got. Um, quite a few um, emails from different distributors. And unfortunately, I had to turn them down because making the product myself, the margins just weren't worth it. I wasn't able to produce and sell at the cost that they wanted to to buy it from me for. So unfortunately, I had to turn them down.
0: Yeah, and so for people who don't know, like wholesale, which you're selling to the retail stores is usually 50% of retail but then distributor pricing is 30% below that, which really leaves you with very little wiggle room. And there's some kinds of products that it works for, and you make it back in volume. And there's some kinds of products that it just doesn't work for. And so so you stuck to doing direct-to-consumer. You have a Shopify site. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. And did you decide to sell on Etsy, too, or no Etsy?
1: So I started on Etsy. Um having sold my previous my quilts and, and things on Etsy before, that's where I started. Um, but then it came to a point where I, I wanted more ownership of how I was showing my product and how I was setting up my shop and what I was able to do. And so I did eventually move to Shopify.
0: Right. Okay. And then on Shopify, do you have a way for for retailers to buy wholesale or to see a wholesale catalog of some kind? So um, my wholesalers do, they do
1: order directly on Shopify and I use a separate code for them so they can see the entire catalog that I have um, online. So for the partnerships that I've done with different designers, their products are on a private side of my Shopify website so that only they have access to see it because they have ownership of their product. I don't sell direct to consumers, any of, any of the custom, custom tins
0: right right okay so that we'll talk we'll talk about a collaboration snacks but basically like you've done some it's not like white labeling but almost like these partnerships with particular designers where they're having their name and things like that on the product itself mm-hmm. And so those products are not available for the retail store owners to shop from wholesale because yeah. they're only available for those designers to sell direct to consumer. Um, yeah. so anyway that's that's a differentiation there but um and do you have you thought about selling on a site like fair um, you know, one of these sort of wholesale sites where gift shops and other kinds of retailers can go to shop from tons of different brands at once. And whereas, is, is that a little bit closer to sort of working with the distributor as far as the margins are concerned for you?
1: Yeah, I, I looked into it. Right, I think it was around the time that Fair had first launched. Um, they had reached out to me as well, and I looked at the margins, and it, again, it just wasn't it wasn't worth it for me. And so, I decided to to continue with with the avenues that I was currently selling.
0: Okay. So then when it comes to managing these retail accounts um, and growing the retail side of the business, if you're not working with distributors, you know, one of the positives of working with a distributor and there are negatives, but one of the positives is that, you know, a lot of store owners are super busy. And so when it comes time to order merchandise for their stores, they get the just the catalog from, checker or notions or whatever, and they look through and place one order with one Mm -hmm. distributor and they get all different kinds of notions and all different kinds of thread and all different kinds of products and all different brands from that one order, which certainly simplifies things. But if you don't have your product in the catalog, you know, or on the distributor site or whatever, then in order for them to order it, they have to come directly to you. And if that means that's one notion, right. Of, of many Mm -hmm. kinds. So it's a lot of stops along the way. So, um, so anyway, can you talk a little bit about how you've kind of built out? It sounds like you started in Canada with the retail stores, um, how you've built out that piece. Cause I know a lot of folks are like, Oh, how do I get in touch with all these retailers and how do they, you know, find me and how do I keep track of them all and things like that?
1: Yeah. So I, I keep track of all of my um, all of my stockists through my website. And I have a vendor newsletter as well that I specifically only talk to my vendors through. They get their own separate updates. They get um, information on launches and shutdown periods and any, any sort of information and updates that I need to give to them is strictly through that, that email list. Um, everything else is managed
0: on my Shopify site. Right, Shopify does make it much more simple. Um, mm-hmm. Do you know have an estimate of like how many retailers are stocking it right now? Like in a, a rough estimate, do you have any 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 estimate there? A rough estimate. I think I'm
1: I'm getting close to the hundred mark. Nice, that's great. And that is um,
0: Canada, the US, and then there's a few overseas. That's fabulous. And retail store owners. Reach out because this is a great product to carry <laughs> in your store. Um, okay. So let's talk about those collaborations because you did mention them and they are been super important. And in fact, I think that that's how I first heard about So Fine Fred Gloss was through Carolyn Friedlander. So if you yeah. want to talk a little bit about, um, her collaboration in particular, Libs Elliott, the other ones that you, Blair Stalker, the other ones mm-hmm. that you've done, how, how did these come about and why are they important? Carolyn. Who is now a wonderful
1: friend of mine? I will forever be thankful for her for um, for taking the chance with me. And it all started. So I've I've been a fan of Carolyn's patterns and fabrics for as long as I can remember. She's one of my most favorite pattern designers. And reading her blog one day, she mentioned that Thread Heaven was going away, and that was what she was using on a regular basis. And so again, it was around the time that I had started to, to launch my product. And so I sent a message to her through her website and I said, Hey, Carolyn, love your stuff. (laughs) Big fan of your work, obviously, um, not cheesy, but, um, I'm making this product and I would love for you to give it a try. No strings attached. You don't need to promote it, whatever. I would just be thrilled if, you could use it. And if you gave me feedback, great. I know you're busy. So if if I don't get feedback, whatever, but I would love to send you some. So she responded and I sent her some. And I think it was maybe six months later, She, I got this random email out of nowhere asking if I would consider making her some custom scents to sell. And I think my heart stopped that day because it was just like, oh my God, <laughs> she emailed me, you know? Just like fangirling over one of my favorite quilt designers, um, reaching out and emailing me, so um, we we started talking about you know what what scents were important to her, what things in her life were impactful, and and what she wanted to like the different scents that you wanted to convey in her thread gloss. And so I created some samples for her sent them off. She used them for a while, got, you know, got some opinions. Some of them were hits, some of them were misses. And from there, she launched a three tin or three cent collection. And um, that was the start of many wonderful things.
0: (laughs) And what were the sales like? I mean, you love Carolyn Friedlander. She has a big following and a very unique aesthetic. but. My guess, well, two things. One is when you sent her the samples, it's not like you were thinking, I'm going to create custom scents for you. No, maybe, not Like maybe she would like it, or maybe she would mention it in a newsletter or on her Instagram or something like that. But I wondered when she did come back and said, would you create these custom scents? That was a different idea than the one that you had in your mind. Did you feel any initial resistance? Like, oh, wait, I didn't that... I didn't have that in mind. Or were you immediately like, oh yeah, great idea? Yeah, it was definitely like a yes, I will do whatever you say.
1: Okay. (laughs) I didn't uh, so I had never um I had never considered the thought never came in my brain to to reach out to different people to have custom custom sense or um a collection that would be exclusive to them. Um, but she when she reached out, she's like, you know, I'm I'm looking for ways to to expand my income as well, you know, different areas that she can can um to get into to complement her patterns and complement the fabrics. Um similarly to how you know I've got a few hand sewing notions on my website that complement the thread gloss. So ways that um products and things that she could she could sell herself to to complement her work.
0: Right. And so when you went to other designers did you then go to them with that idea no so I didn't I
1: I didn't approach anybody else after that so um my the second collaboration was with libs and I had met libs previously um she's she's just a few hours away from us here in Ottawa she's in Toronto and she had come up to the Ottawa guild to to teach some classes and so, um, I was part of the executive of the guild at that point. And so I was her, I was her chauffeur. I drove her around and, and dropped off her at her hotel. And I may have slipped her a tin as a, like, if you want to give this a try, you know, I'd love to get your feedback again, no strings attached. Um, and shortly after that, she, she emailed me as well out of the blue and said, um, I don't know exactly if this is what she said, but like, you know, I've seen what you've done with Carolyn's. I'd love to do something similarly as well. So um, that is where it started with Libs. And she's had a few collections as has Carolyn. And again, I love working with these different designers because like you said, their aesthetic is so interesting and so different from each other. And you get to learn a lot about a person and their style by what they what what they find interesting, what what smells they like. <laughs> it sounds sometimes it sounds a bit ridiculous sometimes, but you can definitely you get to know more about them by the sense that they've chosen.
0: Yeah. And I think that this is such an interesting way to do co-marketing alongside designers and both of you spread the word and both of you benefit from the relationship. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of like the RFL thread collections that are branded mm-hmm. to specific designers. Um, Cause it's similar kind of white labeling Without It's not quite white, white labeling, but it's, it's sort of um, yeah. Like lending that person's, I guess they do that. And like, I'm thinking like in Nike's or shoe, you know, like high-end sneakers do something similar where like a part, particular person will be, um you know attached to that product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a cool way to to do things. Um so I know you've sponsored and, and um and you mentioned this earlier, you've sponsored some events and so um including QuiltCon. And you know I, I think as a business owner we see sometimes these emails with sponsorship opportunities and um and the price of, of sponsoring and think is this going to be worth it? Or, you know, what is, what is it like? What do I get? Is it really going to pan out? It's hard to know. Obviously, QuiltCon is one of the larger, largest consumer shows, um, certainly the, the largest in modern quilting in the US. And so um, tell us a little bit about your experience of sponsoring and what it's done for the brand.
1: Yeah, so um over the past couple of years I have sponsored smaller events. I've, you know, given products to to different guilds or different uh workshops or retreats and um as a donation, but QuiltCon was very specific and I had looked at it previously and they didn't ever have a thread gloss or thread conditioner um sponsorship category and it was Laura Hanabury who reached out to me and said oh my god quiltcon now has a, a thread conditioner um category for sponsorship you should reach out to them so i did and i had talked to amanda who is fantastic and and so for the past few years i've been sponsoring the hand sewing lounge um this year though for quiltcon they went in a bit of a different direction for the hand sewing lounge and so I decided to sponsor the workrooms. So, for every workroom, for every teacher that um, that is teaching a class in Quilcon, there will be tins of thread gloss in each of the rooms. So, it's it's a step up from my my usual sponsorship with them, and um, I'm really excited about it because there's an opportunity to get a tin in the hands of somebody who hasn't seen the product before who, you know, might be, um, might not have a local quilt shop where they'd go be able to go in and smell the product and smell the different scents and and get to use it. They might, they might not be comfortable shopping online or, um, they might want to actually use it before they buy it. So it's, it's a really great way to get, to get the tins into people's hands.
0: That's great. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about that experience. And I, I I do wonder, do you find people have difficulty shopping for something that's scented online when they can't smell it? I think so. And I try to give thorough, but not
1: very lengthy <laughs> descriptions of the scents. Um, I will quite often take the the technical descriptions from the supplier and incorporate that in so that I'm not missing anything, so that I'm not um, using my own personal opinion to describe, I will use some, some fun descriptions and, and spice it up a little bit, but I try to use, um, you know, talking about the different notes and the different, the different, the base notes and different components of the fragrances so that people can get a good idea. Um, I also don't do a lot of mixed scents that might be too hard to describe in words, you know, I try to keep to some fairly basic, basic sense that everybody would recognize.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. Um, And you wanted to recommend a few things um, to our audience. And the first one, it's so funny, because I have this in my notes, um, which is flatter spray from Soap, soak, which I have here right behind me, um, and use all the time. It's like, it's kind of like spray starch, if people are familiar with that. It's like a spray you use when Pressing and it's similar to so fine Fred Gloss in that it's scented as we just described, (laughs) Um, and it's a specialty notion and um, is something that you know you upgrade to once you realize how important it is to press and get crisp seams and stuff. So, do you see some resonance between um, between the two products? Definitely, Um, I love the fragrances that uh, Jacqueline
1: has used in her product, and it is another Canadian business. So, I'm definitely right. definitely on board to support more Canadian businesses. Um their celebration scent is my all-time favorite. I love it so much. Um if I could make a thread glass out of it I would, but I don't know what, <laughs> what the components are in her fragrances. Um but I I use it for everything. I use it for quilting, for sewing, for pressing my shirts which Me I really <laughs> ever do, but <laughs> if I need to iron a shirt, I will use yep. it because I will smell fabulous afterwards. Um yeah but I love I love I mainly use flatter I have used soak their um their wash before Mm -hmm. um I do I do a lot of knitting and so I will use soak as well to you know block a garment or block a cowl or a hat or something
0: yeah absolutely yep absolutely and then you wanted to recommend spin cycle yarns and the shift cowl by um Andrew Mowry who we just had on the show not too long ago nice yes um I spin cycle yarns. I'm fairly new to spin cycle. I know
1: that they've been around for a little while, but um, I, I've got a couple balls here in front of me and I just love how they've done their variegated yarn. It's different than just like a a dyed variegated because it's like the, the actual strands of the wool are dyed separately and then spun together. So it has a really interesting texture after it's, it's been knit together. And, um, I was on a FaceTime call with a friend a few weeks ago and she was recommending the shift cowl. And so I promptly purchased it and got some balls, of spin cycle to, uh, to make my own shift cowl. And I love it so far.
0: That's fabulous. We'll put a link in the show notes to both. So if people can find it, and then you also wanted to recommend the XL stripology ruler. And I don't know anything about this one. Okay. So the stripology rulers are these like acrylic
1: rulers quilting rulers but they have the grooves cut in them already so you don't have to really align anything on your cutting mat you can um but they have grooves cut at different measurements and increments and i bought the xl size because it like really nicely fits over a folded fat quarter and um I specifically use it when I'm cutting my bindings for quilts. So I do a two and a half inch um, Mm -hmm. quilt binding. And I love the fact that I don't have to, you know, read the numbers and do the stupid basic math in my head. I'm like, there's a square cut. There's a square (laughs) cut. (laughs)
0: Love (laughs) that. It's more of a visual cue for me. And yeah, it is. I love that thing. That's great. The math part and exact part of cutting fabric is not my happy place. So everything <laughs> <laughs> that makes it easier is a good thing for me. Well, Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, thank you so much, Abby. I had a blast. Thanks for having me. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby. Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone. From knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today for a special holiday deal. Get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.